Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. You know, Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging. She also is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and spends a whole lot of her time working on community relations for WellMed Medical Management. Nice to see you. Hey, thank you. You're wearing your White House. You got your White House dress. I know. It's perfect for radio. It (laughs) is the dress that I wore when I met the president several weeks ago. At a uh, national conference on aging. Uh, At the White House. Yes, the White House conference on aging. A small group, too. Small group of just 200 older (laughs) aging people. Yes, that was us. He was the youngest guy in the room. He probably probably. was. He probably was. (laughs) Well, one of the things I want to talk with you about, because you hear about this all the time, internet videos, cat videos, dog videos, mouse videos, cow videos. What are the most popular internet videos? So what would you guess? Most popular videos? Cats. That's exactly right. Has to be. So someone has done a research study on cat videos. Of course they have. Of course they have. So, because what a great subject. The media school at Indiana University took it upon themselves to get to the bottom of the cat video mystery. Who are these people and who, you know that love internet cats and why? What does it do for us to watch silly cats on the internet? So, they went to the website where you can see the famous internet cat, Little Bub. I don't know if you've ever seen Little Bub. No, I just know Grumpy Cat. Oh, well, he's probably friends with Grumpy Cat. <laughs> so, and they had 7,000 people answered an online survey wow. to learn more about this phenomenon. And what they found is highly fascinating. Um, people are more than twice as likely to post a video about a cat as they are a selfie. I know I would rather put a picture up of my cat than of myself. Now we're going to find out a little bit about that with our special guest who's coming up in just a minute, Dr. David Pertle, a well-med physician. We're going to ask him about cat selfies. Yeah, cats and selfies or cat selfies, because sometimes our cats do take pictures of themselves and post it, as much as you tell them not to. Often they photobomb us. (laughs) Yes, here I am. Good point, and and we will follow up with him because learned professionals probably know more than we do. Um, He probably already knows that there are 2 million cat videos on YouTube and that they've had 26 billion views, which comes out to 12,000 views per cat video. Wow. Yeah, that is more views per video than any other category. Amazing. It's See? incredible. It's amazing. And according to personality tests, so these people that did this online survey completed a personality test, these are people, people that view cat videos are more likely to be friendly, trusting. So if you want to know if somebody's a good person, you just ask them, hey, do you ever watch cat videos? And that's going to tell you a lot. It's also going to tell you that they're shy. People that watch cat videos really? tend to be a little more introverted. I know Dr. Pirtle is going to want to ask you, how many cats do you have, Ms. Zerniel? And, and I would probably say none of your business, <laughs> Mr. Doctor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know what happens when you watch a cat video? This is why they're really so popular. Is if people, if they are tense, you know, uh, they, they feel less anxiety, less sadness, and less annoyance. After watching a cat video, there are actually, I actually saw two articles on cat videos this week, and it did talk about cat videos as a stress reducer, as a way to relax yourself during the day when you're frustrated. Take time out, get your blood pressure cool. down with your local cat video, and you're going to feel better. And and just so that you will know, the um, money, about $700 that the university paid for the cat video research they donated all of it to the Little little Bub's Big Fund for uh, protection of cruelty well, to cool. animals. So it did help raise money for good costs. Remember the story about the cat in the nursing home who uh, would go into a patient's room when that patient was about to expire? Yes, I remember that. No one wanted that cat in their room. <laughs> you get out of here. <laughs> yeah, stay away from me. Somehow the cat knew. 
Yeah, he did. Cats are smart and now, cute. Your dream is soon to be a reality. The self-driving car. It is my dream. That's my I do wife's want dream for me. It is, it is my dream. I, I, I agree. I think you should have a self-driving car. I think all of us sh- well, should. You've seen me drive. <laughs> so um, more on why boomers are going to be pushing for self-driving cars. Uh, so, you know, that's that's us. Some of us here in the room are boomers. And the car companies have been pouring millions of dollars into self-driving cars. Um and the, there's a test city, there's actually a test city that um, at the University of Ann Arbor where they make it, it's like a real town where they can test these self-driving cars. Uh, and their testing technology, Toyota has created a department that unifies different connected car technologies. Ooh. So that means your technology in your car talks to my technology in my car talks to the technology in your car and that way I don't run into you, we don't run into each other, we don't run in and sometimes we talk to things on the street. So I don't this sounds like something out of the uh, Minority Report. You remember the movie? Yeah, exactly. Tom Cruise walks into the department store and they know who he is and right. all everything about right. him just because he walks in the door and he's got some chip on him somewhere. It happens to me at the AGB, the one I keep complaining about. <laughs> they, they keep it. They're like, "Hello, he's Mr. here. Ron. He's here." <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and but then there was this big Washington Post article about how hackers said, "Oh, we can hack into your self-driving car. We can crash everybody on right. the road." They could. So, so we have to know that it's safe. Uh, so there's a lot of hurdles. But the bottom line on this particular article was, boomers are going to want it because a, it's cool. B, you know, we want to chill out and let the car drive itself because. That would be more fun than driving, actually, probably most of the time. And what's good for older people, so the push is to help. You know, the car companies want people to drive as long as they possibly can. They don't want to lose any customers because they got too old and can't see well enough to drive. Um, So the same thing, we all want independence. And just the same way the 18-year-old wants their independence, the 81-year-old wants the independence. You know, that's what this is really all about is it's going to be better for everyone it's not going to be seen as something for the elderly everybody's going to want a self-driving car i think so and if everybody does it's going to be better than an iphone because it'll probably have an iphone in the self-driving car right so that's in other better. words you're living in an iphone driving down you're, the street. absolutely that's absolutely and, the, and do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about how they're going to want you to watch videos in the car because as long as you're watching the screen at the front of the car, it can tell you, hey, yo, take control of the car right. because we need a human behind the wheel at this point. So it's going to huh. encourage you to watch movies and text while you're driving or not driving. How did uh, hairless naked mole rats do in terms of videos on the Internet? <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to go back and do a little more research on our friends, the naked mole rat. And the, what was it we had that looked like small hippopotamuses? Yes. It was a little It was tiny something organism. else. It was like burpees. I don't yeah. know. I don't remember what they that was, were. It was uh, last week. That it was, was years a whole, ago. That was a week ago. Yeah. Who knows what I said us, last you're week? You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation on 930 AM. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And in just a couple of moments, we are going to talk with Dr. David Pertle about his work as a WellMed physician, and we're going to give you... The warning you should have had at least two weeks ago, get that flu shot. We'll talk about that coming up as well. But before we do that, tell me, Carol, because you know all, what does going green have to do with cupcakes? What does going green have to do with cupcakes? More interesting research. Funny I should ask. Because everybody that's (laughs) listening has been wondering that very thing. So this is a weird study. It was what happens when you ask people to bring in their own shopping bags, right? You know, that sometimes the stores, they'll give you a rebate or they encourage you to go green, bring in those reusable bags. So they did a study, a retro study with a large supermarket chain, and they went back and they looked at what people bought. Oh. They brought in their own grocery bags, and they knew they bought in their own grocery bags because they got this rebate you know, when they went to the store with their own bag. So it shows up on the register receipts. They could research this. And what they found out was that people who bring back their own grocery bags tend to buy more sweet food like cupcakes and candy and junk food. 
There was a direct correlation between bringing in green bags. So people that bought in the, or, you know, the green return the bags were more likely to buy organic food because they're kind of already thinking about the planet, but they were kind of surprised. And so because they were surprised, they did another study and they took people and they said, pretend you're bringing in green bags and pretend you're not to the other group. And then they said, now pretend what you're putting in your shopping cart. The people <laughs> pretending to return bags to the store bought more sweets. Really? <laughs> Even when they didn't really do it. But when they said, your grocery store, re- pretend your grocery store requires you to reuse your bags, those people didn't buy more sweets. Oh. So apparently when we're being, we feel generous, oh, look, we've done something good for the planet. We deserve a little reward. I'm going to get a cupcake because I saved the world. That's very funny. Isn't that funny? Now, we don't have a lot of time left, but this is an important question. You've got the answer for everybody listening, especially Medicare-eligible seniors. And, and, their, know, and their caregivers. And their caregivers, exactly. How much forgetfulness is normal? Well, apparently, yes, a lot more than we think because we're so busy in American life. We're just not paying attention to the details. You know, this stuff is not getting encoded into our brains because it's not part of the goal. It's not important. Uh, And a lot of us worry about little things that really have no import and we think that we're losing our minds. But if you're one of those people that that's happening to, you know, there are things that you can do. Always put your keys in the same place every time, every time. So train yourself that way. Um, you know, if you, you can word associate, Mr. White has gray hair. When you meet Mr. White, Mr. White, White, okay, you can remember. Oh, yeah, his name is Mr. White because he's got white hair. It's gray hair. So word association. So you can play little games like that. Um, if you exercise, reduce your stress, and eat well, you're much less likely to have memory loss if you take care of yourself. So that can be the other thing. And pay attention to what's going on around you. You might remember some more. What was the first one on that list? Yeah, really, what was that? You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. For those of you who are new to this program, uh, WellMed, in addition to this program, has a great website, which would be caregiversos.org. And what can you do on that website? You can go to that website and you can listen to all of the past radio shows that we've done here on Caregiver SOS on air and get a lot of resources for family caregivers. And sign up for the Caregiver Teleconnection. Absolutely. Sounds good. We're going to talk to Dr. David Pearl in a couple of moments. He is the newest WellMed physician. How new? Been on the job about 20 minutes. We'll find out more right here on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Well, thank you very much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Sundays at 6 in the afternoon. You also can hear podcasts of these shows. Just go to caregiversos.org and you can find the podcasts, download them, listen to them on your computer, Take them with you, put them in a little iPod, whatever you want to do with them, and we could be with you all day, every day. All day long. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and we're delighted to welcome Dr. David Pirtle uh, with us. He's a graduate of Texas Tech University undergrad and med school, Red Raider, and it turns out you shared, first of all, welcome, nice to see you. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. You shared a very interesting statistic that uh, in terms of 
the size and scope of Texas Tech Med School, it's huge. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so what we were talking about right before the show is just how much of an underserved area that the Texas Tech region serves. Uh, what I was saying was you take a line down from Wichita Falls and you go south and everything west of that is Texas Tech territory by and large. So that university serves the largest underserved area in the uh, entire nation. Which where they have counties in that area that are listed as primitive. Primitive means that they have less than five people Per square mile. Wow. So the great, it's God's country. And yet you chose to move to the big city here in San Antonio, That's Texas. right. Didn't take you long to get out of there, did it? Well, <laughs> no. Well, I tell you, I thought when I moved to Lubbock originally that that was a big city. I was like, oh, my gosh, well, crosswalk. Oh, God. You know, but no, this is nice. No, I'm glad to be a San Antonio resident here in Bear County now. Now, you are relatively young. You could be the Doogie Hauser of well-med physicians. That's a TV show that probably you're too, you're too young to know you anything born. about. <laughs> Ask an older person you work with who Doogie Hauser was, but a lot of our listeners will know that. Oh, uh, I'm why aware. did you why did you pick working with seniors? Why did I pick working with seniors? So when I started going through my family medicine training back in Corpus Christi, I I realized that uh, I just I just enjoyed it more, so to speak. I uh, had some good faculty members that made me really interested. i uh, give them a quick shout-out now. That would be uh, Dr. Kathy Sock and Dr. Scott Ireton, two individuals that really loved uh, working with our aging community, uh, really brought that passion into it, and I could see it in their eyes. And uh, it really interested me to learn more. It's a very complex area. Uh, it's an area that doesn't surprisingly get a whole lot of attention in medical school training. And I, I know, right? Uh, uh, but yeah, Carol, who's a gerontologist, tells you that at a cocktail party, people ask what she does. She says, I'm a gerontologist, and their eyes glaze over. They're like, yeah, they can't run far. And, oh, I think I need another drink. I think <laughs> I hear someone's calling me, and they must be calling me. Nice. So I guess at the same cocktail party, then, uh, I take the approach from, you know, pediatrics and geriatrics. It gets the same thing. It gets, a, well, you know, you either take care of babies or I take care of older people. And, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, so if you nice. throw babies in with the older people, then you get the, oh. Well, you know, but you have to have the cats and their cat selfies. And, <laughs> you know, right. actually, uh, puppies, I think, puppies works better. <laughs> That's do, do you have patients? Who come in and uh, when they first meet you and you're, it's their first visit, first touch, they get to talk to you. Uh, any of them want to take selfies with you so they can have a picture of their doctor? No. <laughs> I wish, though. We ought to start that Maybe trend. I was going to say that, yeah, that would be like, I'm here with my doctor. Look, right. cheese. Exactly. But if they brought their cats, you know how those things are. See, he does. He, <laughs> yeah. does, he wants, yeah, he's obviously seen some cat videos that we were talking about earlier in the show. Yeah, exactly. Now oh, we're moving. Cats are jerks. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we'll keep going. It's a shame that he has to leave so quickly. So quickly, <laughs> yeah, and our segment's not yeah. over yet. We're entering into the fall time of year. Temperatures are going to get cooler. People spend more time uh, perhaps wearing warmer clothing, not real warm in South Texas, but it's time of year when you hear Flu shot, flu shot, flu shot. Hey, I had one last year, doctor. Why do I need another one? Oh, right. Absolutely. So straight to the point, flu, right? I know. We had all the cat talk. We had the electric cars. Uh, you know, how we buy our groceries and how do I top that? I'm going to talk to you today about the flu. Well, <laughs> so that's a very good question that you have. Though. There are some vaccines that you can only take or that you should only take once, uh, and that pretty much covers you for a long time. And those are always needed, for example, like zoster vaccination, so, shingles. you know, shingles issues, right, or uh, with a pneumonia shot. Uh, that's a one-timer uh, as well. And obviously you need to get those because those are bad complications. But uh, when it comes to the flu, uh, the flu is a pretty awful virus. Uh, when you look at it on the grand scheme of things, it's the second most lethal infectious disease known to man. Uh, it's only second to the plague. Ooh, so when you plague and then the flu. So wow. right. So that's the scope of things that we're looking at right now. Now, if we look at just how deadly the flu is, right? Well, uh, let's look back at Ebola. 
you remember you guys remember that was the hot topic last year. Everybody thought about Ebola. It was what forty or four thousand people, I think that you know somewhere in the thousands range. We had like in two Africa. People. In Africa, we have what two and three people in, in Dallas. The, in, yeah, in this area. Who brought it over? Right. From Africa. Right. right. And it was easily contained, not, you know. Easily, highly, easily contained. <laughs> comparatively with the flu. Well, Ooh. this is true. The Ebola yeah. did not hop. It was only two or three people. Right. And it's not airborne. Right. And so the flu caught by droplets, right? Easily caught. You can start spreading it before you have symptoms. Ebola, you can't get it unless you have symptoms, right? Once you have those, then you can be contagious with the flu. You could be symptom-free and still spreading the virus. That's uh, just not fair. I know. It's, I know. Yeah. Did uh, I don't think we mentioned that you like studied microbiology. In undergrad school. In undergraduate school. So before medical school, you were already interested in small things that can kill you. That's right. That's right. I actually was a uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute research fellow. So I uh, worked in a virology lab, primarily with HIV and not the flu. Um, thankfully, not as easy to catch. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, all those diseases, uh, very, very interesting and very scary. Uh, and just how scary, you know, is going to get back. No, I'm that. already. I'm already. I was trying to. No, this is the, the importance. Of this, this is the importance. The flu is way scarier than any of us thought. Right, right. So if we look at some of the stats back from when swine flu came out, 2000. Well, I say not came out, but originally, uh, hit, I guess back on the back on the radar back in 2009, the H1N1. That's when people started talking about it, especially more in this area. Uh, that year, I think there were about. 43,000 deaths of the flu in the country. Somewhere really? 80, 90 percent of those so were 4, older people. So 4,000 Ebola worldwide? Yeah. Or something, or in the concentrated areas, and 43,000 flu in right. the United States. Exactly. Yeah, 43,000 people died well, what of is the, it that of kills the flu you and complicated. So uh, rarely is it the flu itself. When we're talking about the flus in circulation, those are, on average, around 2 to 5% lethal by themselves. It's usually things that you get as a consequence of that because it's such, it does such a number on your immune system, on your body, that it makes you susceptible to all kinds of things. It makes you more likely to get pneumonia, for example, uh, and things that wouldn't normally make you sick. Something as simple as flossing your teeth can cause a bad problem. So Because... Because you can introduce infections into your blood that normally wouldn't have made you sick. I am never flossing my teeth when I have the flu again. Please don't do that. <laughs> I live to floss. My dentist isn't going to like you very much. <laughs> you know what well, no, he, he, no, he should. He though, should like you. God grief. Because we're trying to get those flu shots. Because if you don't floss, you get more business at the dental office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now you're starting to see the scope of why exactly these flu shots are so very important. Last year, they, they and it's a roulette wheel every, every year in terms of what type flu will be spreading around the world, they missed it last year. And so a lot of people got the flu, although somewhat uh, less severe if they'd had a flu shot, but the shot was not uh, Very effective. as effective as it's been in the past. Is that right? I would have to disagree with you on that. Oh. So that's a very common misperception that I really? see. Uh, first, the vaccinations that are sent out into circulation are built on statistics. I know this is where we start snoozing, uh, and the statisticians are over with the gerontologist. Yeah, that's right at the parties. We're in the corner <laughs> right. eating chips alone. So th this is one of the things I try like to tell my patients, right? It's like a double we, dip if you're We try to prepare for things, right? Uh, like, say, Thanksgiving dinner. We're preparing dinner thinking, who's going to be coming over? Usually that's our family, friends that come over. Now, I guess all people would be theoretically possible for coming over. For example, the president could come over. Is it likely that he's going to come over to Thanksgiving dinner at your house? Probably not. But last year, the president showed up and some of the family members didn't. So we were caught relatively unprepared. With the president and no family and not enough turkey. <laughs> right. But uh, thankfully, the flu still, the flu vaccine still provided some level of effectiveness. That's right. He didn't so, go away hungry. Right. Yeah. Didn't go away hungry. Um, still, still got the turkey at the White House. So but I, I come back to my point, yeah. which you <laughs> succeeded in shooting down with a howitzer. My, my, my <laughs> point was... Mm -hmm. 
and I think you're actually supporting that point, uh, the shot was not as effective as they have been in the past. No, and I was getting to that. Okay, oh, so wait. That's the right. second installment. Okay. <laughs> yes, the second installment I'm of with this you. very long story. Uh, no, what you have uh, with older people that get the flu is that they tend to be in the hospital more. They're, Why are you like, the deaths are a lot more. And so whenever you hear people say, well, I got the flu shot, I still got sick, therefore it didn't work. But the key there is that they weren't in the hospital. They didn't not, die. And they didn't die. And, that, and that's a big thing, too. So you may not still Not dying is a big thing. Stay <laughs> with me. We're going to come right back to you. Talking with Dr. David Pirtle about viruses, S- vaccines. Scariest flu ever. ever. flu. This is... You, you have managed to paint a picture here uh, that in the several years we've been doing this show, talking about flu and flu shots every year, no one has brought it home like this. In fact, I'm getting a shot today. I'm getting two, two of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting two shots. Stick with us right here on Caregiver SOS on air. We are rocketing along here on Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and Dr. David Pirtle is with us, a Red Raider, born and bred, graduate of undergrad and graduate school at Texas Tech, and now a WellMed physician. Uh, we're going to get details on where you find him and if he's looking to add patients to his panel. But we were steeped in the dangers of flu and flu vaccines not the danger of the vaccine the danger of the flu right and we were talking about how while it it wasn't as effective as it might have been uh fewer people died who might have died if they hadn't had the shot right right it still gave some degree of protection talking about last year right so is there any prediction on this year's flu vaccine whether it's going to be a little bit better tuned to the flu that's actually out there on the money or not well, fingers crossed that we'll be on it. You know, we haven't quite hit the flu season yet, and that's really good. CDC really recommends, that's though, the that you have your— disease control. That is correct. And they really do recommend that you have the flu shot by October. So you've still got a couple of weeks left. Why by October if the flu season doesn't really start till what, December? Right, because we want to give your immune system time to really build up the immunity to be ready uh, for this thing whenever it hits. Right. So, you know, like at Wellmet Clinics, we'll be offering flu shots all the way through the, you know, October, November time period, wind down by the end of the year. So Absolutely. So you would get it sooner rather than later? I would. Uh, you can't predict in many times when the flu is actually going to make its debut. I think 2009 really proved that whenever we had it. And uh, I guess it started in the early summer, really early fall. I remember back in Amarillo, I believe you had told me earlier That's, that you're you know, from yes, that Amarillo, area. Yes, Amarillo, yes. That uh, we had filled up uh, Northwest Hospital and uh, even BSA, uh, a lot of pediatrics and a lot of uh, geriatric patients with the flu. Uh, and it was this time, it was uh, end of August, early September. During that. Yeah, well, last year was ba- it was early last year. Um, it was already all wound up because I know I stopped. I stopped going to the gym when flu season hits, uh, just for all the reasons you talked about. All those th- the germs flying around, people not knowing, and the people that do know they had the flu and they think they need to work out anyway. So last year, that's rude. And the flu season was so terrible. I didn't go to the gym from like October to March. I had to go someplace else because I just didn't want to be around all those sick people. There are more sick people in the gym than the hospital. Uh, that's that's fantastic. I, I'm going to use that excuse now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <thinking. really. laughs> all right. So, so Dr. Pirtle, when it comes to flu and how you get it, obviously mm-hmm. it's contagious because if someone in this room has it now, we, we'd all be exposed. How is it passed on? Uh, so it's passed on through droplets. Uh, so when you say it's an airborne virus, it's airborne through droplet secretions. Uh, prevention is a Saliva. Right, right. But uh, it can travel a little bit further than just, you know, within the saliva. So uh, the way that most viruses are spread is in, is in, ben, that, excuse me, in by that means. Uh, and I think... So I've heard three rows on an airplane, that you need to be three rows away from anybody who's coughing or has the flu. I usually say uh, somewhere between five, seven feet should be okay. Um, I think that's overkill. 
for for this. Uh, I think good hand washing is a good thing. What about uh, masks? Obviously. Uh, if you have a problems with your immune system or if you, for example, if you're an HIV patient or if you have cancer, uh, undergoing chemo, I would recommend that uh, you take precautions like that. Um, or if you are taking care of somebody that has those conditions, it's always good that you don't get it to expose them as well. I'm glad you brought that up. The show is named at Caregivers. Caregiver SOS on mm-hmm. here gives you that clue when we welcome you into the studio. If you're a caregiver, uh, not only should your care recipient get a flu shot, you should too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a concept in immunology called herd immunity. And the basic idea behind that is that we vaccinate as many people as we can to pretty much stop the virus in its tracks. This is how we eradicated uh, smallpox from the population. So it's a very effective. And this is why some of the diseases are coming back, because some people are not getting their children vaccinated against. Because we think we cured the diseases. We didn't cure the diseases we have all the, the the shots that prevent right. us from catching it. Right. We've suppressed them from being able to uh, yes. get out to the community. Exactly. Right. right. Whooping cough would be one example. Whooping cough is definitely making its debut back. Um, you ever seen it or heard it? Oh, pertussis? Absolutely. What's it sound like? Oh, they say it's like a barking seal. But you, you just want me to make the sound on the radio. I do. He'd look at his face. He's not going to. Okay, so you're going to have to go to a YouTube and watch somebody else (laughs) making that sound. I'm pretty sure there's some good cats that can do it. They're a whoop sound. Oh, cat could do it, right. All right. Uh, That's another shot at cats. That's good. Yeah, but but what you're saying, in all seriousness, the you know, so the flu, it, it does sound, when you, the way you talk about it, you made a be- total believer out of me. I can't go get my flu shot fast enough mm-hmm. um, in, in, in its importance. Uh, we were joking about, well, maybe we'll get two flu shots. So there's, you don't really get two flu shots. There's another kind of flu shot. There's a super shot for seniors. Right. So for those that are 65 and older, uh, there is a high-dose flu vaccine. I'm really glad you brought that up because there's there's been a lot of questions regarding that now. Um, And with the research that we know, we know that it can boost the antibody response, which theoretically makes it to where it fights it off better, right? We haven't really demonstrated that, though. So we're still doing research around that? Well, the research concluded say or showed evidence of that there wasn't really a good uh, protection or added protection behind doing it that way over the standard flu shot. But it does boost your immune system response. So that makes it really good for patients, again, that undergoing chemotherapy. And they'll be the ones that we are going to vaccinate with those. Okay, so you should be you should be in a one of those categories of people that has a compromised immune system. We should not want everybody to run out and ask for the super shot. The regular flu shot is probably good enough for most people. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What if you got two flu shots? Is that the same idea? Well, you brought up you know kind of last year. I think is being the uh, is being the template for what we're doing again. Uh, And some people got another flu shot later on. And that's because over time, our immunity to the virus with the way that flu mutates diminishes. So about a year is what we have. Um, It still diminishes over time, though. So you still want to get a second one if you get it really early on. And then the flu season starts a lot later than expected. Uh, Which, again, you know, I think last year we had a boost around February. So So some people did. Why do we get the flu? I mean, what is what causes the flu to come around in the fall and winter? What is that about? Uh, Well, I think it's just patterns of the virus. So it's it's because we're all staying indoors more. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's uh, colder weather. Uh, you've got more people. You got the school season. It's already started back. You've I've, got people close together. It's the children's fault. It's those kids in school all huddled together in school, giving everybody else the flu. They're little petri of course. dishes. Of absolutely, and cats. And <laughs> 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 I had to throw that zinger in there. You mentioned cats. Dogs now uh, get flu shots. There's a canine flu uh, that is rampant now in San Antonio, according to my veterinarian. And our dog has the canine flu shot. Yeah, absolutely. That's been going around uh, all summer long. It's uh, been a a big problem uh, within the dogs. As you take a look at uh, the way the flu shot works, is there a point where we may be able to develop uh, an omnibus flu shot that just covers everything? No, because the flu just changes so much. It's a smart little virus. Absolutely. You know, viruses in general have a way of 
uh, of adapting. They were here before us, and uh, they'll be here after. So you said the flu is a virus. So if we have a virus, is that when we go out and get an antibiotic? Absolutely not. Um, flu uh, viruses in general are not helped by antibiotics, and that's another thing that a lot of people think about that causes issues. Um, but with that said, if you do get the flu, there are those secondary things that can make us really sick, like, which are uh, like, like a pneumonia. Like a bacterial infection, right. which is a different type of infection. And that's where most people end up in trouble. So those tend to require antibiotics, and with our seniors, those tend to require a lot stronger ones. Uh, what would be the antibiotic of choice? Well, typically, uh, if you end up in the hospital, those are going to be IV antibiotics, and it's going to be based on the type of uh, pneumonia that we see. Wow. But so most people, let's, let's say we're, we're, we're healthy, we're not an older person, we're not, we don't have a compromised immune system. If we get the flu, what should we do? Okay, so excellent question. I love this one. Uh, within 24 hours, contact your doctor. Uh, there are medications that you can take to decrease the severity of the flu, even the length of the flu. Uh, a lot of people like Tamiflu. Uh, it covers influenza A and B. Uh, there are other medications out there, uh, particularly amantadine. Uh, now, amantadine causes a lot of problems with older people, so we don't, we don't like to give that one. And it doesn't cover flu B, which, again, flu B was the one that was really bad last year, uh, at least up down in the uh, Corpus Christi area. Uh, so with Tamiflu, if you can get it within 24 hours, longest 48 hours, you can have some benefit from it. It's expensive. It is, but so is the flu. And so is so is being True. in the so, hospital. So 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 we within 24 mm -hmm. 24 to 48 hours, we should try to get Tamiflu. Uh, and if we miss that window, do we just wait it out, go to bed, stay away from people? Uh, well, you do want to you know stay uh, hydrated during that time. Uh, fever reducers would be good. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but when it comes to uh, that, that first window, now if you're exposed or someone's exposed to you, let's say you're the caregiver uh, in this case, which is you know the focus of the show uh, here, you also may want to think about uh, taking it ahead of time before you even get sick. You can actually not, maybe you won't prevent the full virus. If it's you a prophylactic dose of Tamiflu. Exactly. And physicians would be willing, if I took my loved one into the doctor and he had the flu and he got Tamiflu, I could say, would you mind? Could you look at me? My, should I get some too? And they would consider that? It depends on your physician. Or but I'd have to go see my physician. I need to go to my physician to do that. Either way, it really depends on the physician that you see. Some okay. are going to be, uh, I guess, more allowable with that than, uh, than others. But certainly, uh, that's reasonable. Our if, whole family uh, took Tamiflu this past year uh -huh. because we, we have three little ones. Three little ones. Yeah. And one of the twins, two years old at the time, uh, at the doctor's office, they ran a screening, and he tested positive for flu. Mm. No symptoms yet, but he tested positive. And you said you can be contagious before you see symptoms. And so we all were then able to get Tamiflu. And I don't know if it, this is you know, an example, but there's no independent study. Uh, we all did not get the flu. And I think That's Tamiflu awesome. may have played a role, but I don't know. Well, you know, I'm glad That's you did That's why I knew it's expensive yeah. because I paid for it. I stayed away from the gym. I, I, I didn't get the flu either. Right. But, but he lives in our house. You don't, want, you don't want to prevent your daily routine activities. Now, I'm I, just saying, if you're, a, if you're a hypochondriac extreme person, you can do what I do. But if you're a rational person, live your life, please. <laughs> right, absolutely. And, you know, I do want to make a, you know, a closing <laughs> remark about who shouldn't. Hold that thought. We're not going anywhere quite yeah. yet, are we? Are we going anywhere? We're, we're, no. No, you have more time. We got, more time, we got right? one more minute. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, go ahead. All right, so your, your okay. concluding thought. Yeah, so, you know, there are people that uh, should, not get the, should not get the flu vaccination. Oh. Certainly there's a lot of questions about uh, Guillain-Barre, which is a uh, condition, it's a neurologic condition with, with numbness and uh, even paralysis that goes from your feet upwards. Uh, that was a big deal in the 70s, uh, and that was related to a infection within the, or contamination within the vaccine. That's when President Ford and his administration made available a, a, a swine flu shot for millions of Americans. And I remember it firsthand because mm -hmm. I, I know so many people who are afraid of getting Guillain-Barre mm -hmm. syndrome. Well, it was related to a, an organism called Campylobacter. Campylobacter is something that can make you really sick if you have some bad food at a cookout, right? And the way that our body recognizes it to attack it, it actually looks very similar to our antibodies. 
as does uh, the, the coating around our nerves, what they oh. call a myelin sheath. Ooh. So that's why. But that was a condition that happened back then. Uh, we add antibiotics, uh, gentamicin, I believe is going to be one of them. So if you have a gentamicin allergy, they try to say that that's a, or certain antibiotic allergies, they say that's a, wow. you know. Let's do caution. this because we're flat out of time. You folks want to uh, get a hold of you if they're looking for a new uh, physician, if they're Medicare eligible. Uh, are, are you taking new patients? Oh, yes, absolutely. So uh, newer to the uh, San Antonio market, like you said, I'll uh, start at the WellMed at Northwest 410. That's right off the, uh, right off the loop. It's the uh, Centerview. Uh, uh, yes, off of Centerview, uh, 4438 cool. Centerview here in San Antonio. So folks can go in, say they want to meet you, get to know you. They can, uh, they can call 615-WELL right. and ask for the referral to Let's Dr. Let's stop right there. We are more than flat out of time. WellMed is the place to find Dr. Pirtle. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming in. Thank you for having me on the show. It was an honor. Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 614-WELL. Not that all of our Caregiver SOS shows aren't fun and exciting. They are, but the kicker to each show, Take 10, is even more so. And each show ends with a topic and a discussion with Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist, expert on caregiving and addictions, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And Carol, you've got a very interesting topic for this week. Well, the, the topic this week, I, I mentioned before the show that a friend of mine was been caring for her husband for the last couple of years. Uh, he had cancer, and he did pass away this week. Uh, and I was thinking about all of the caregiving work that she did uh, the last couple of years uh, and wondering about caring for someone who is terminal, who's dying, uh, versus caring for someone uh, who maybe has a chronic condition, maybe very severe arthritis, maybe, um, you know, is disabled, quadriplegic, paraplegic, had a stroke. You know, but, but somebody that has a disease that you know is going to pass away, ultimately, is there, Jamie, is there an additional skill set that we need when we're dealing with someone who is terminal? Is it, is it vastly different? Is it not that different? What would someone, when they've gotten that cancer diagnosis, um, want to have with them in term, on, in this their toolbox. Uh, on this toolbox for their caregiving journey? Well, I'm a bit biased, but I think that's the beauty of these conversations that you, Ron, and I have is to kick around ideas. But my belief system is that chronic conditions like high blood pressure or diabetes or arthritis are lifetime anyway, and something is going to get you, right? And, and therefore, when dealing with like a, um, a chronic illness, if you will, I know that we're see, we see a likely end in sight that's, that has maybe more of a hopeful ending, right? That's what we're trying to say. But at the end of the day, the, the, the caregiver burden, which is something we talked about last week, is, is going to be similar. That if you're not able to provide care for yourself at the, during the time taking care of a chronic illness or a terminal illness, it's going to affect not just yourself, but the person that you're with. Well, one of the things that I noticed in speaking with my friend is that she had had conversation for what happens after he passes. So when the caregiving is done, and so I don't, and maybe that's a bonus that they were actually thinking about that. I think a lot of caregivers, when you're not expecting someone to pass away, you've been taking care of them. They've had, maybe they have COPD or congestive heart failure, um, and and it's it's a little bit of a surprise versus someone you're expecting. So she had the opportunity as a family to talk about what happens next when when her caregiving is finished. I love what you're saying and it's 
fascinating in America why we have to be really compelled to have that conversation only when we know that it's a terminal illness, right? Um, the more I speak about the five wishes, you know, of advanced directives to, to families, to, to people over 18 years old, the, the more I know that this conversation needs to be happening whether we have a chronic or terminal illness. There's no question that this terminal illness of, and again, I'm very sorry for your friend's passing. I, I had a friend pass from melanoma as well, and, it, and it's a very, very tough, tough course. But the fact is that you're right. They have an opportunity to talk, to put some closure, to, to be able to, to allow the caregiver and care, care to share. And I do think that in terms of complicated grief reactions, which we can get into in, in a minute, that when you do have these conversations and when you have this peace, if you will, if there can be found peace, that you know what the other person's thinking and what to do at the end, it does allow better closure and better boundaries. Yeah, there was an interesting article in the New York Times recently, uh, Sunday New York Times, that, where a woman was talking about the loss of her sister and how she was very in the moment. When she was with her sister, uh, she said her sister became, as she was dying, she became more like herself, which we say that about the elderly anyway. As you age, you become more like yourself. Um, and But she, in in that moment, when she was with her sister, she took was trying to take the time to to really absorb and, and focus on all of the positive things and the normal things, you know, sibling rivalry and, you know, taking jabs at each other, things that they had done all their life. Um, but when she left and when she walked out of that room, you know, she was just overcome with this grief and this sense of loss and that, you know, her sister was the only person in the world who was her champion that was left. Yes, no doubt. And, you know, as I work with seniors and, and not just in psychological issues and therapy, but even on addictions especially, you know, dealing with these grief reactions that you're describing are, are really the key to whether we live a healthy life or we become bogged down and stuck. Um, I do believe we should always plan for end-of-life decisions, whether we're dealing with a terminal illness or a chronic illness. And the, the beauty of your friend's conversation and knowing that they, they could have this talk was that they were forced into it. But as a culture, one of the beauties of mindfulness, if you will, is, is getting in touch you know, with, with the entire specter of life, not seeing death as if it's a negative thing, but as part of life. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, you know, Carol and, and Jamie, my mother uh, was caring for my dad. He had dementia, uh, never fully diagnosed as Alzheimer's, probably was, but it doesn't matter. Uh, but he died suddenly. He, he was in very good health and had a, a brain embolism and dropped dead in their bedroom one day, uh, which was a total shock to her, uh, and it affected her in, in, in a number of ways. One was suddenly she had this big hole in her life. Her days were taken fully caring for my dad, and then she had nothing to do. Well, and, and I think that's really important, and, and you know, we were talking about that just a little bit, hinting that even you know any caregiver, any caregiver that is just giving their all into this caregiving realm or has to do you know 24-7, Jamie, you've talked about post-caregiving so that we would encourage all caregivers to envision a life for themselves beyond caregiving. It's kind of like empty nest when your kids grow up and they leave and go off to school. Then what are you going to do? Well, they celebrated and they did okay with that when my brother Jimmy and I left. But when my dad died, she hadn't thought about it. Hadn't thought about it. She hadn't planned for it. You know, the complication is this, and we all know cases where somebody passes away and then six months later a loved one will pass away as well. Very common. And because they're not re-engaged back. First of all, the thing we're talking about is complicated grief, where a caregiver loses not just their loved one, who is deep emotionally complex in terms of, of that loss, but they also lose their full-time job. And then so they feel their self-esteem is devalued, they feel isolated, they feel like they don't have self-worth, and really they go back out and literally, it's not long before they find they're passing. That's why it's so critical in that time, after they've grieved appropriately, to keep your arms around them and reconnect them back. And I think what you do at Caregiver SOS, Carol, what we do at WellMed uh, there is exactly the perfect opportunity. Well, and it's important to, you know, we talked about grief in someone who's dying, but uh, you can have grief along the way. You may be grieving, it may not be a terminal illness, but you may be grieving for a person who's functional, they're, functionally they're not the same, emotionally they're not the same, uh, you know, psych psychologically they're not the same. They're, we may, we grieve along the way. It's not a simple one-time process 
at death. I cannot tell you how important what you just said is. And to your listening audience, I would say this. This is all the more reason why you need a therapist in this process. Because this grief is very private, very unique, and very intimate, just like your, your description of the two sisters. And I think if you can see a therapist once every couple of weeks and bring that grief to the therapist and process it there and leave it there, like we talked about caregiver burden last week, I can tell you that you're going to come back and have strong boundaries and, and good self-care strategies. Well, and it's so nice to have a therapist is a is a wonderful place where you are 100% yourself and that therapist is 100% in your corner. So you can say things that you maybe your friends and family might think are inappropriate. Um, you know, because sometimes we wish somebody who's terminal was, we wish the journey was over. We wish we were done. We just can't do this anymore. And we can say that we wouldn't might feel embarrassed to say that to anybody else. But a therapist, you can get all of those emotions, the good and the bad out. How do you I find one? Part, uh, well, you find I, one? A, number one, you can find a Tell your listening audience, go to their, obviously, insurance plan. I'm sure WellMed has a group of providers. But if you want to work backwards, go to Psychology Today, where I blog. Put your zip code in, in the website, and watch the therapist appear on your screen, and then look at what insurance they take. But they will tell you on the screen, as they give their overview, of whether they work with senior issues, whether they work with caregiver issues, or grief issues. So there should be really no excuse. And, and most of them will take Medicare, and, and I, I'd have a therapist as a, as a necessary tool in any caregiving experience. Well, you got the last word as a therapist, Carol? I would say Jamie's right on. It, a therapist um, is a great, great asset to have. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernial, and me, Ron Aaron. We will talk with you again soon right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.